If you brought your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 2. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, we have some out there on the table. You're welcome to, to help yourself. You're welcome to run out there and grab one. Uh, now you'll find Luke 2 on page 857. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, take one of those with you. Keep it. It's yours. Uh, we, we, want, uh, we want to give you that. We want God's Word in the hands of, of God's people. Uh, Luke chapter 2, uh, I'm going to read verses 22 uh, to 35, but we're going to look this morning just at one verse. Uh, in fact, we're actually going to look at one phrase for that matter. Um, but uh, Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 22, it's our practice here at Grace Covenant. Uh, you stand when a bride enters the room. You stand if the President of the United States enters the room. Uh, how much more should we stand when in the presence of God and His Word. So let's stand together as we, as we read God's Word together. And when the time came for their purification, there, that's, that's Mary and Jesus, according to the law of Moses, they brought Him up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens, first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would, as the one who uh, inspired not just these words, but even the law on which uh, these words are, are found, because uh, you were at work uh, writing the law of Moses. Uh, you were at work writing uh, this through Luke. And we pray that you would be at work in us even now, to hear, to understand, and to believe and trust. Through Christ we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. I hope that since uh, tomorrow's Christmas, today's Christmas Eve, tomorrow's Christmas, uh, I hope that... Uh, I'll say you because as the one up front, I have the privilege of saying you. I get to choose the uh, pronouns, which means I get to sort of distance myself from guilt, right? Uh, so I hope that you, and by that I mean we, spend as much time over the next 24, 36 hours talking about Christ and why He's come to earth, why we celebrate Christmas at all, why 
what is it that we're celebrating? I mean, why do I have this manger scene set up on this table in my house? And why is there this little baby? In the, I mean, I, I hope that those kinds of conversations are going on in our homes. We uh, would do well to know and understand and discuss uh, why Christ has come, what He's come to do for us. Um, and that's the question I want to look at this morning, just fairly fairly briefly. Uh, the scene is this. Mary and Joseph are bringing uh, Jesus back to the temple. He's already been circumcised, and now he has to come back uh, and be uh, presented uh, for this uh, purification offering. In fact, you know uh, that they uh, were, were poor because they give the offering of the poor. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. They're there in the temple uh, to make this offering following the, the law of Moses, following the uh, commands given to uh, Israel as they were, were traveling from Egypt to the promised land. By the way, as an aside, that matters for us. We need Christ to be a sinless Savior. This obedience to that command means that even before he's old enough to talk, the law is being fulfilled in Jesus. That matters for you and me. I mean, this is, this is no throwaway passage in that sense. We, we need Christ to have kept the law perfectly and completely so that here, even as an infant, that law is being fulfilled in Jesus. Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple and there they find this man, Simeon, a just and devout man, a righteous and devout man. He's, he's waiting for Christ. He's looking for the Messiah. He's read his Old Testament and he understands this Old Testament is about a, a promised Redeemer, a promised Messiah. He's waiting for him. He's looking for him. In fact, he's He's gotten a prophecy, he's gotten a word from God that said, by the way, Simeon, you will live long enough to see this Christ. You will live long enough to see the Messiah. But you notice this one phrase as Luke describes Simeon there in the temple. He's been waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's been promised that he wouldn't die until he saw that consolation. I want to ask just two questions this morning. And I have to warn you because it's preaching rule 101, never make point two longer than point one. You always start with your longer point because then everybody gets their hopes up, right? The, the second one's the bigger question. I just want to ask two questions of uh, this passage, of that phrase. First, what is consolation? Already your minds have sort of begun to formulate a definition. When you think of the word consolation, inevitably, the way we use that word, you have to be sad. It's a consolation prize because you lost the game. Or it's consolation because you've lost a loved one, a family member has passed away. Or because you've just gotten word that uh, your company is downsizing and 
you're going to lose your job or you have to be transferred away somewhere else, somewhere you really don't want to go. You really don't want to leave home and family and, and the place you've known forever in order to need consolation, in order to receive consolation, in our minds, you have to be sad. In fact, that's Webster's definition, consolation, to make someone feel less sad. That's a sad definition. I mean, you read the definition and you're like, oh, that's just horrible. It makes you, the definition of the word makes you feel even worse before you even have a chance to be consoled. Your friends come over. Maybe they don't know what to say. Sometimes it's better not to know what to say. Sometimes it's better not to say. Sometimes it's just better just to be there. They share your burden. They share your grief. They share your pain. They may try to say things that will bring comfort and consolation to you. They want you to know they care. They want you to feel less sad. They want you to feel less dejected about your loss or your pain or your suffering. That's all fine and good for short-term earthly sadness. I mean, that's all fine and good for job loss. That pain goes away anyway, right? I mean, you find a new job or you move on. I mean, that pain goes away. It's hard for a time. That pain goes away. That's all fine and good for the pain and, and struggle and agony of this world. But what about eternal troubles? Who consoles you when you're wrestling with spiritual depression and fear? What consolation is there when you recognize, eternally speaking, I am doomed to hell. I'm doomed to to pain and torture and pain and torment that won't subside over time, that I can't replace with just another job. What about consolation for that sort of struggle, pain, agony? Biblical consolation means more than just feeling less sad. Biblical consolation means more than just, than just having sadness taken away from you. It means the presence of something. There's a, a passage in uh, 2 Samuel where David has, King David has committed adultery with Bathsheba. He tried to cover it up and then had her husband killed. It's all a big mess. She gives birth to a son. And while that son is he's, he's sick, he's dying, and while that son is alive, David fasts and he prays for that child. And as soon as he gets word that that child has died... He gets up, he bathes, and he eats a big meal. And his servants are so confused. I don't understand, why are you doing this? Why would you eat after the really bad news? Why wouldn't you, you wouldn't eat 
when he was alive, and now that he's dead, which is the, the bad news, right? I mean, and, and David says, while he was alive, there was hope that perhaps God would hear my pain and my struggle and relent and let the child live. But now that he is gone, he's essentially trusting in God's power and wisdom. He finds consolation. Okay, yes, it's bad news that his son has died. But he finds consolation in the fact that God is in control. And that God's will is being carried out. It means resting in the arms of someone else. It means trusting God. Biblical consolation is more than just the the absence of sadness. It's the presence of peace. It's the presence of joy. In other words, Christ has come... Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel and as as soon as he takes Jesus in his arms, he says, I can die now because I'm holding this consolation of Israel. I'm holding the promised Messiah. I'm holding the Lord's Christ. You can let your servant depart in peace. You have fulfilled your promise to me, Simeon says. Jesus comes as the consolation of Israel. The one who would not just remove sadness... And it's certainly not just remove earthly sadness. We still deal with the effects of living in a fallen, broken world. But He's come to remove eternal sadness and to bring peace and joy. In other words, Christ is the Prince of Peace. What is consolation? Well, in this context, it means the presence of of peace and joy through Trust in Christ. It's not just the absence of sadness. It's the presence of peace. Well, if that's the case, then how is Christ our consolation? Any number of ways we could answer that question. But if consolation means at least the removal of sadness, and again, biblically speaking, it's, it's eternal sorrow, it's eternal pain, and, and the presence of peace and joy. How does Christ fulfill this consolation? How is He our consolation? Well, notice that Christ takes away that which is painful. Christ takes away that which is is painful and is, is a struggle for us. We read in Romans 8 that there's no condemnation for those who are in, who are in Christ. Our sin, because of our sin, you and I deserve punishment. We, we've committed cosmic treason. The the triune God sits on His throne in heaven over all of His creation and we've decided to look at Him and say, I don't need you. I'm not going to do it your way. I'm going to do it my way. And that deserves, through that disobedience, it deserves punishment. You and I deserve punishment for our sin. But notice the promise 
in Romans 8. Christ has taken that punishment from us. That those who are in Christ, those who are trusting in Christ alone for their salvation, that punishment has been taken away from you. That punishment that you and I deserve through our disobedience has been removed and taken from us. We could read Isaiah 53. We've all like sheep gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him, that is Christ, the iniquity of us all. He died with the names of his people written on the palms of his hands. In fact, we sing a song that describes that written in in marks of indelible grace. Impressed on his palms it remains, my name that is, in marks of indelible grace. You know how hard it is to get indelible ink off your hands? You You just have to wait. I mean, you can wash a couple of times, and eventually that permanent marker, you, you just have to wait. It, it, it'll eventually rub off. It, it gets on your clothes, it gets on your hands, and it's, it's a mess. And part of the point of that song is to say that your name is written there permanently. Your name can't be taken away from the palms of His hands. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So who can condemn us? Who can, who can lay a charge against us? No one can. Christ takes away the punishment for our sin. As Christians, trusting in Christ alone for our salvation, your punishment has been taken from you and laid on Him. So be comforted. But He also takes away the fear and threat of spiritual desertion. As Christians, there has to be in each of us, and quite honestly, it's varying levels and degrees in each of us. For some, this is a huge struggle. For R.C. Sproul, who just passed away a little over a week ago, this was a, a big deal through part of his life. There's always the fear of being deserted. There's always at some level that fear that you'll be left alone. That you'll be left on your own. Worse, that God will leave you. Jesus promised, He promises in John 10, I give my sheep eternal life. I hold them in my hand and nobody can take them away. No one can come along and take them out of my hand. You may come and and, and grab a pen or a piece of paper or I may, you know, your kid may come home with a pretty bad report card and they're holding it in their hands and you're saying, give me that. And they're trying to, to keep it away from you. And then as soon as you get it, if you're stronger, you'll snatch it right out of their hands. Jesus says, there is no one who can take the believer out of my hands. As Christians, we're promised that Christ will never leave you nor forsake you. 
He'll never turn His back on you. He won't redeem you, save you, only to say, wait, never mind, I'm going to go somewhere else now. We have this promise and and assurance that we're forever held in the hand of Christ. You won't be deserted by Christ. So, be comforted. He doesn't just take away condemnation and, and punishment for sin. He doesn't just take away the fear of spiritual desertion, but He also grants something else. You know, it's one thing for the threat, the danger, the fear of punishment for sin. It's, it's one thing for that punishment to be taken away. But you still walk around guilty. You you still walk around carrying the guilt of having committed cosmic treason. Jesus doesn't just take away the, the punishment and condemnation. He grants forgiveness in its place. In other words, if you as a believer live your life with this constant feeling of, okay, I know I'm not, I know he's not going to punish me for this, but now I've got to carry the guilt and shame. Jesus says, absolutely not. I've died for that guilt and shame. I've taken that guilt and shame on me so that you might be forgiven. Presidents leave office and they pardon criminals. And sometimes you and I scratch our heads at the list of names, perhaps the length, perhaps the people that are on it. We think to ourselves, I would never have pardoned that guy. But they walk away not as having served their time, but as never having to serve time. Okay, they they were arrested and they were found guilty and they were in prison, But a presidential pardon says he never did it. This man is free, not because I'm saying let him out early, but because I'm saying we're never going to hold the guilt of that crime over his head again. That's what Christ has done for you. Christ has, has so died for your sin, had so paid the punishment, that the penalty that you and I deserve, because he's taken that guilt on himself. So that you walk away and go, yes, I just committed that sin. But the guilt of that sin has already been nailed to a cross 2,000 years ago. Christ bore it on His shoulders and suffered and died so that I might find forgiveness. Through the act of one man, you and I receive Not just punishment taken away, but forgiveness granted in its place. So be comforted. We also have a promise. In Luke 23, Jesus is hanging on a cross. And He's got two criminals, one on each side of Him. One of of the criminals throwing jeers 
at Jesus. Ah, you think you're all that. Take yourself down. You're supposed to be this Messiah. Take yourself off the cross. You can free yourself. Come on. Oh, and by the way, grab us to prove that you have the power. Get yourself down. Get us down. The other one, on the other hand, ultimately, finally says, dude, we're getting what we deserved. We committed a crime worthy of death. This man didn't. And then he turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Do you remember Jesus' response? Surely, probably, maybe, hopefully, one day, you too can be in paradise with me. That's not what Jesus said. He didn't say, hopefully, maybe one day you could. Surely, today, you will be with me in paradise. How does Jesus give consolation? He, he grants you the hope of heaven. Has taken away the punishment that your sin deserves. Has taken away any fear of being deserted by God, of being forgotten by God, has granted forgiveness and has given you the promise of heaven. So be comforted. But He's also given us, and we've experienced this already this morning, He's given us the right of access to God in heaven. You have access to pray. You realize we, we have a friend who was a Secret Service agent. He's had presidential detail a couple of times. Three or four different presidents now. Um, spent some time in Oxford, Mississippi when we were there. Uh, then went back to D.C., thankfully. Um, and uh, then now is elsewhere uh, while he was back in D.C., um, we took a family vacation to Washington. He gave us a tour of an after-hours tour of the West Wing. Pretty cool. In fact, we, we got out of the car, and he kind of had this puzzled look on his face. He's like, y'all, something's up. That's the car of, that's the car of, and, and it's secretaries, it's cabinet members, it's you know, ranking officials. He's like, I wonder what's going on. Why are these people here so late? We couldn't go out into the Rose Garden um, because uh, President and Mrs. Obama were sitting out on their balcony. I just want to go out in the garden. I'm not going to bother them. I'm, I'm, yo, Pres, what's, I mean, what am I going to do? You can't go out there because, because he's out there. You, you realize you and I can't just walk in and go, but I pay for this house. I'm taking a tour of the West Wing. You realize you can't just waltz into the White House and say, but I'm a citizen of the United States. My, my taxes pay his salary. My taxes pay for the electricity and the water. And, and I want to see my house. I want to see my house. I own part of this. I want to see it. You have to let me in. It's absurd. You climb a fence and boom, Secret Service are, are all on top of you. You might get shot. But the very God of heaven says to you, come. 
walk in. Access, you have total access to me day or night, any day of the year, any month of the year, any time you want, for whatever reason, you have access to me through Christ. How does Christ console Israel? How does He bring consolation to His people? You have access to the One who, simply speaking, created the sun, the moon, and the stars, and all the trees in your yard, and all the animals in the zoo. You have access to God through Christ. We're commanded, instructed, urged, begged, lay your requests at His feet. Be anxious for nothing, but through prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Is this bad enough to bother God with? I'm going to wring my hands and tremble in fear, and I'll go to God when when I have nothing else. We treat prayer like a, um, a desperate measure. You know, desperate times call for desperate measures. Scripture treats prayer like it should be a normal, everyday conversation. You have access to God through prayer. Christ brings you consolation because you can now speak to the very God of heaven. Believer, be comforted. Christ has come to bring consolation. To take away punishment and guilt for sin, to take away any fear of of being deserted spiritually for all eternity, to bring forgiveness uh, to His people, to grant you the hope and promise of heaven, to grant you access to the very throne room of heaven through prayer. Let me make just one application from this passage. Perhaps you've heard people say, perhaps... You've said, Jesus is the reason for the season. It's admittedly sort of politically and socially charged. I mean, we say that really to mean that we have Christmas to celebrate Jesus. It's not about presents or trees or holidays or days out of school. That that there's a real reason. And, And quite honestly... We say it because there are people who want to take Christ out of Christmas. And so we want to remind people Jesus is the reason for the season. I'm not sure that's true. I don't think Jesus is the reason for the season. You are. Isn't that why Christ came? Christ didn't come for Him came for you. You're the reason for the season. You're the reason we have Christmas. You're the reason Jesus took on flesh and and came as a little babe in a manger some 2,000 years ago. It's because you have needs. It's because you needed consolation. You needed pain and guilt and punishment taken away from you and forgiveness granted and access to God in prayer and promise of heaven. You needed that given to you. You couldn't get it. So be comforted. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ for your salvation, this passage says you have no hope of consolation anywhere other than Christ. 
Simeon is waiting for the consolation of Israel. Not one of the consolations of Israel. Not one of many consolations of Israel. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. This passage says if you've never trusted in Christ for your salvation, He is your only hope of deliverance from punishment and guilt due to sin. But believer, be comforted. If your hope and trust is in Christ, then what we celebrate tonight, tomorrow, whenever you choose to celebrate Christmas, what you're celebrating is deliverance, freedom from guilt and punishment for sin, fear of God, and the promise, the granting of forgiveness, access to God through prayer, and the assurance and hope of heaven. May Christ grant each of us that consolation, not just today and tomorrow, but for all eternity. Let's pray together. Our great God and our King, uh, we thank You that we have the hope and assurance of consolation in Christ. Our sin is real. Our guilt is heavy. But the substitutionary life and death of Jesus is more real and more powerful, able to bear that guilt. And so, Father, we pray that You would give us peace. Not only that You would make us less sad, but that You would grant us peace and joy in Christ. And that we would celebrate that consolation this Christmas. Through Christ we pray. Amen.